Well, good morning. Um, it's certainly a pleasure to be with you. Uh, as Pastor Jay said, my name is Stephen Reynolds, and I serve at, as the, uh, the vicar or the pastoral intern at First Lutheran Church in that other college town in Florida. Um, we'll leave it at that. And uh, one of the things I asked uh, Pastor Jay back probably last March, I think, I said, potentially, I'd like to come up and see your ministry. Because in Gainesville, we have a campus ministry, but it's different. Um, it's at a bigger, more stat- uh, older a uh, larger congregation. It's off campus by about five blocks. Um, it's different. We have more staff. Um, there's, there's, not that you all don't have anything going on here, but with 300 people in worship, it's just different, right? And so I said, Pastor Jay, can I come up and kind of follow you around and make a nuisance of myself? And he'll probably tell you I did this week. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful to be here with you and to bring you God's Word. And this morning we look at Mark chapter 10, our Gospel reading, where this rich young man shows up. And uh, it's an interesting case. It's a really tough text. Um, I think a lot of us like to hone in right away on this, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me, right? Well, that message I've learned really doesn't preach in a college town, because most of you students are probably pretty poor and don't have much, right? Yeah, I think you do. You guys know what it is to get by on a shoestring budget. And so Pastor Jay got in touch with me and he said, "We're, we're taking up this idea of hard hearts. This idea of things that harden our heart to God's work in our lives. And this week we come across this idea of moralism. Right? And as I began to think about it, we all have morals. Right? Just about everybody does. We all have a set of ethical guidelines or behaviors that we we know certain behaviors are right and certain behaviors are wrong. We do certain things and we don't do other things. We, we know they're right and wrong. And those things can be influenced by all sorts of things. By the way, mom and dad raised us. By the way, you know, our church teaches. Um, by the way, you know, we act in certain ways in our jobs because those are the rules. Right? I was, uh, it's interesting. You know, many of you will make the comment that morals have changed and morals have shifted. And so things that society now thinks are okay weren't okay 50 years ago, Right? Um, I, see, I see some heads nodding. Uh, it's true. In fact, <laughs> it was interesting. I was in Wisconsin uh, a month ago or so now, and I was at my grandparents' house. Uh, my great-grandmother had died after 104 years of life. Um, it, it, is, it was the first time I had been up to my grandparents since I was assigned to Gainesville. And so my grandparents, I wanted to know, what's Gainesville like? And, uh, you know, I explained, well, it's kind of like the end of the American South. They have things like sweet tea and key lime pie and boiled peanuts, all of this stuff. You know, they're from northern Wisconsin. And uh, that, that, that didn't kind of get through to them. So, they, you know, they said, well, what's the town like? And I said, well, you know, 250,000, big major university. And said, okay, but what's it like? And finally I said, Gainesville is a lot like Madison. For, for them, Madison is kind of the college town in Wisconsin. I said it's a lot like Madison, but without the state government workers. And uh, God bless my grandfather. Without skipping a beat, he says, oh, the people in Gainesville aren't as immoral as those in Madison, aren't they? are they? Now, you might want to, you know, you may have different thoughts about how immoral people are in Gainesville. <laughs> but it's interesting. There's a generational divide kind of about what's moral... And what's not? And how things have changed. And, you know, I can see the, the stark contrast between kind of my generation, people my age, and people my grandparents' age. Um, I think Pastor Jay made the comment yesterday that 
perhaps everybody behaved a little bit more morally yesterday because it was parents' weekend, right? Yeah. Things were pretty tame yesterday, and that's okay. Well, this morning we have Jesus encountering this young man. And we know he's a rich young man from this text. And he's a pretty moral dude, isn't he? And he comes to Jesus, and we don't know why he asks the question, but he asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, one of the things that is kind of echoing behind the text is, this is a question that had been asked in every school, in every line of thought of Judaism at the time. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer, and this is really remarkable, despite all of the divisions and all of the splinters and everything else, the answer was always, don't sin and keep the statutes of God. Right? And so perhaps this young man is putting Jesus to the test. Perhaps this, this young man is trying to figure out where he is on these things. And so Jesus responds. He says, you know the commandments, right? You know what's going on. Um, and he lists commandments, essentially four through ten in our language. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, I've done all of that. We're good. He's a pretty moral dude, isn't he? He's honored his father and mother. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't murdered. And so it seems like, according to the line of thought in Judaism at the time, he's in. He's in good shape. He's got nothing else to do. Just keep living the way he lives, right? Yeah. But how does Jesus feel about that? You see, it, it would be easy if the story stopped right there, wouldn't it? It would be easy for us to say, be good and you're in. Ah, but Jesus doesn't do that, does he? No, instead he looks right at the, at the young man and he says, well, good, but now go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. There's something different here. Jesus has a little bit, something different in mind. So he challenges this young man. He says, go, sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. So what's the issue here? What's the problem with this young man? And I will contend it's this. This young man had used his morals. He had used his good behavior to set up a wall in his heart. He had used his keeping of the commandments. He had used his perfect actions to set up a wall in his heart. Because what was inside of his heart was completely rotten. You see, this young man had set up a God inside of his heart that wanted to protect itself. And what was this young young man's God? His possessions, right? His money. And so what happens? He goes away disappointed. He goes away disappointed because he's got plenty of stuff. He's got plenty of things that he has accrued, whether it's money or possessions or wealth or whatever. He goes away because he's not willing to part with those. And there's there's a line in the text that I just love. It says, Jesus looked at him and said, or Jesus looked at him and loved him. Right? Jesus looked right at him and loved him. doesn't tell us how, just that Jesus loved him. 
And what does that mean? See, Jesus isn't concerned simply with your outward moral actions. As I said with the children, he is not concerned with you checking the boxes, with you walking around in life and being a good moral person and treating each other nicely. At the end of the day, sometimes I think Christianity gets boiled down to be nice to others. But Jesus is much more concerned about something else. He's actually concerned about hearts. Jesus is much more concerned about the God you have set up in your heart and whether it's Him or something else. And you see, if the God is something else, it's going to harden your heart to anything else. If the God is money, time, possessions, getting a great degree, the Florida Gators, the Florida State Seminoles, if your God is any of those things, your heart is going to be hardened to anything else in this world. Your heart is not going to be receptive to the call, come follow me. You see, Jesus is much more concerned about the heart than he is about your actions. Um, you read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Perhaps the speech, quote-unquote, that Jesus is most famous for. In fact, I remember in my AP senior high school class at a public school, I got to do a report on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he adds something to the commandments, doesn't he? He said, it's not only do not kill, it's also do not look at your brother with anger in your heart, or you've already killed him. Don't steal means don't even desire to have what your brother has. Don't commit adultery. Well, if you look upon a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You see, you read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's much more concerned with where your heart is. And did you notice something? There's a couple of commandments Jesus didn't mention, right? In this encounter with this rich young man. There's a few commandments that don't come up. The first three, and specifically the first one, right? Which is not dealing with a relationship this way. It's dealing with a question of who your God is. Have no other gods before me, the Lord says to the, Egypt, or to the Israelites. Excuse me. So it's a question of which God is set up in your heart. And one of the things about this text that I love is Jesus loves this man. And you know what that means? It means treating him as a person. Somebody with a heart, soul, mind, all of these things. Jesus loves this man. Sorry, Blake, you're just going to have to be the man today. Right? He loves the... Yeah, right. Jesus loves this man. And that means treating him as a person. Not a checklist of moral actions to follow. And so, the question is this. Why are we so inclined to simply want to check off the boxes and think God will love me at the end of the day? Why are we so inclined to simply, we simply want to say, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Why are we so inclined to think that way? Uh, there's a story out there, it uh, happened five or six years ago now, there's a sociologist by the name of Robert Putnam, and he was presenting at Concordia Seminary, the graduate school both Pastor Jay and I, I currently attend, Pastor Jay graduated from five years ago now, wow, and uh, 
Robert Putnam is a, he's a Harvard professor, and he's presenting at, a, uh, at an academic conference. And he said something that about 65% of American Christians are convinced they are saved by good works. That's what they believe. They are saved by their good works, right? And uh, there's a famous story. One renowned member of the faculty at the seminary stood up. He's been there for a very long time, and he said, yeah, but that's not our people. And Dr. Putnam, um, and I'm, I'm only telling you the story I was not there for, he walks over to his laptop and he pulls up the number, and he says, your people, specifically Missouri Synod Lutherans, the percentage is actually higher. And you see, that just tells us something about the human condition, doesn't it? We want to check off the boxes because we know if Jesus is really concerned with the heart, if Jesus is really concerned with what in, what's inside, we know that when we look at ourselves, we know that what's inside isn't that pretty. We know that what's inside is not, I want to follow Jesus, but I want to follow myself. We know that what's inside is simply... I want for me. We know that what's inside is I want to be my own God and make my own decisions. And that terrifies us. And so we reach and we kind of flail and we try to do the best we can to check off the boxes and somehow that will appease God. And so we're nice moral people and not much else. So this is tough, right? And you hear it, the disciples at the end of our text, they pick it up, right? And so this young man, his issue is the God of money, right? But the disciples pick up on what's a little bit bigger. They say, who can be saved? Who can be saved because this is a hard teaching? And what does Jesus say? He says, what's impossible for you? What's impossible for mortals? is possible with God. What is impossible for us to do by ourselves to clean out that heart, to rid ourselves of that false God that lives in there, that hardens our hearts? It's possible for me. You see, God has entered into your heart. God has entered into your heart during this worship service this morning. As Pastor Jay said, I forgive you. God has entered into your heart and into your life at all sorts of various points. Some of them very explicit. Every time you come to the Lord's Supper, every time you remember your baptism, you recognize that God has come into your life and acted. And that God has entered by the power of His Spirit. He has opened you up. God has unseated that false God that loves to dwell in your heart. And He has opened you up. First to Him, and then to each other. You see, as much as we like to check off the boxes... God deals with us as people. God says, I love you. I love you enough to enter into your own heart and to remove that false God. God says, I love you. Now come follow me. God has entered into all of our lives as we've gathered here this morning. Anytime the body of Christ comes together, we remember the fact that God has entered into our lives in many and different ways. One of the things I love to do on Vicarage, um, one of the things I'm often assigned to do is to go visit uh, shut-ins or shut-in couples. And one of, the, uh, one of the questions I love to ask, I say, so how did you two meet? Right? 
And there was one couple in our congregation, uh, Dick and Anna Gutekunst. They've been married 65 years. And I said, how did you two meet? And they both kind of get that twinkle in their eye, and, and they tell me, and then Dick goes, yeah, I didn't realize it at the time, but God was really working through both of us. And he's brought us together, and he's given us 65 years of marriage. And then, uh, I have to tell you this story, just because it's Dick and Anna Gutekunst. He says, now let me tell you something, you young whippersnapper. He says, the last 64 years of marriage, he said, they're the hardest. And I said, I can understand that, Dick. But you see, as Jesus has come into our lives and into our hearts and acted in very specific ways, this changes our whole outlook and our behavior, doesn't it? So our moral behavior no longer is a box to check so that God can say, well done. No, rather, our moral behavior and our behavior in our lives as Christian people in this world become opportunities not to check off the box, but to love. Our behavior becomes an opportunity to reach out, to care for the other. Because we know God has already entered into our lives. So, Martin Luther always does this thing where, you know, the commandment says, do not steal. But now it becomes an opportunity to look out for the best interest of our neighbor. Okay? Commandment says, do not commit adultery. No, and in fact, now I have an opportunity to love my spouse even more. Because it's not a checklist. It's a recognition of the fact that God has entered into our lives by the power of the Spirit, that He has called us first to love Him, and then to love each other. See, the fact that you no longer have this false God dwelling in your heart, that hardens your heart, means you have a heart that's actually soft. It means that you have a heart that is open to the needs of the other. And so there's this metaphor in the scriptures God talks about all the time in the Old Testament. Removing his people's heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. You as God's people have been given that heart of flesh. You as God's people have been opened up both to him and to each other. And that's the promise we rejoice in as his people today. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we praise and thank you that you have entered into our lives, that you have opened us up to you and to each other. Lord, we pray continually... Uh, Remind us of who we are in you, that you have removed all of the false gods, all of the things that harden our heart, Lord. And use us as your people in this world to reach out and to care for the other. All of this we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.